Welcome to the Situation Report for June 30th, 2023. This is Lieutenant Colonel Murray, and I am joined again by Alex Craner. And it's uh, Alex, it's always a, a it's an honor to have you. I'm telling you, the last time we talked, it generated all kinds of conversation that I couldn't keep up with. So one of the questions, though, that uh, my audience wants to know from you, and let's start here, is how did you get into the, the social media circuit in the current format you're in? How did that start? Okay, well, that's a fair question. First of all, thank you for having me, Stephen, and uh, warm greetings from Croatia to all your listeners. Um, all right, so where do I begin? I, I uh, you know, I worked for a very long time as a as a as a market ma market analyst, oil trader, uh, hedge fund manager, and so forth. Well, basically, a huge part of the job, I would say, probably two thirds of the time you spend in the office is just research and. Uh, it's the kind of research that you simply have to figure out the way the world works uh, rather than the way they tell you that it does, which is uh, mostly not true. And so I, I've done I've been doing this for many, many years, for more than two decades. And um, uh, one one peculiar event happened uh, in 2005. I met this uh, hedge fund manager guy who was uh, uh, running the largest uh, foreign owned investment fund in Moscow. Um, and then, you know, like that story kind of, uh, expanded. He, he, it was, it was Bill Browder, the man who managed somehow to lobby through us Congress, the, the Magnitsky act, uh, which is deemed to be the opening salvo of the new cold war, uh, between the United States and Russia. And so, you know, having met him on a few occasions, I knew a little bit about his story and the 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 narrative he used to pass this um this um law through us congress this magnitsky act uh was fraudulent and i and i knew that you know and uh so i thought my gosh you know like this is very dangerous because this is leading us into the into a potential world war 3 scenario and somebody needs to unmask these people and uh you know at the time you know the guy. The guy's not a household name. I I felt maybe I know more about this story than most people, and so I thought, well, it may as well be me. So I, you know, sat down and wrote the book, and then I published it. And again, you know, like I'm a I'm an anonymous nobody. So the book was published on, um, Amazon. I I self published it, and I kind of left it at that. And then a few weeks later, um, a history professor uh, in the United States, his name was is, is Jeremy Kuzmarov, uh, wrote a review on Huffington Post, and I, I, you know, for me this was very exciting. So I wanted to share that with a few friends, and uh, it literally in a few hours' time, that review vanished. You know, it was just not findable anymore, and. Um, and then five weeks later, the book was, uh, the book was, no, it, within a week, the book was uh, canceled. It was, it was banned from uh, Amazon. And that was literally all happened within five weeks of me publishing this. And so, so I thought, so that, essentially well, you know, Amazon read it after you posted it and self published no, it. No, no, it wasn't, no, no, it wasn't that Amazon read it. It was that, a man named um, Jonathan Weiner, who was uh, an advisor to John Kerry in uh, in the State Department during the Obama administration, wrote a letter to um, 
he wrote a letter to Amazon asking them to delete the book, to remove it. And, you know, Amazon complied, no questions asked. And that was that. And, uh, you know, that generated a little bit of interest. So, you know, I... I started to get invited to some interviews here and there from time to time. But, uh, you know, the the book was the result of my genuine concern that we might find ourselves in the Third World War, which is, you know, unthinkable, except that, you know, I lived through the outbreak of war in former Yugoslavia and Croatia, and I was I served in the Croatian army during that war. And so it wasn't all that unthinkable to me. I, you know, I, I I just kind of thought that, you know, we need to we need to do what we can to push back against this uh, war drive and to uh, to preserve peace. And, I agree. Um, and I think that every little effort can make a difference. And so I thought, you know, like I, I, you know, for my own peace of mind, I need to know that I've done what I could. And that's how, you know, that's, that's what made, that's what was, that what went into, that's what went into the writing of that book. And, uh, you know, I continued, I continued writing, blogging. Eventually I got to, uh, you know, YouTube and Substack and so forth and, I think that this is basically how it happened. You know, with time, um, more people started inviting me to uh, to their podcasts, to conferences, and so forth. And basically, that's how that all happened, kind of all by itself. But I think that the reason is that there really is a genuine thirst for understanding for what the hell is going on, you know, uh, so much so much of what's out there doesn't really make sense and uh, there is a genuine concern about uh, the preservation of peace today because you know people who are in charge seem to be completely insane and uh, you know they are willing to set the world on fire to in order to preserve and expand their own hold on power across the world and so yeah. we are, you know, it's it's almost as if uh, war has been declared on all the rest of the humanity, and we have no choice but to, uh, uh, you know, to fight to defend peace. Yeah, and, and so I would I, I would say it a little I'm, bit differently. I I would say that what we're seeing is we're seeing a, a an elite class that is propagated with sociopaths and psychopaths that don't they they're not hiding behind the curtain anymore and. The rest of the world is fatigued with war and they're fatigued with conflict because let's face it, we've been at war. The U S has been at war since 2002 and we have, we have yep. not stopped conflict. It's just a different place where we're in conflict and the rest of the world is fatigued with it. They're, they're tired of it. And the neocons that are in, not just in Washington, DC, but the neocons that are in um, Europe, and specifically in the city of London, they they don't care who knows. They don't care if the American people know. They don't care if the rest of the world knows. They they don't care. They've come out behind the curtain, and now everybody's it's on display now for everyone. So yes. I, 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 that's how at least that's how I see it. So I think you're spot on. 
I, I, I agree with what you say. I only disagree with you calling them elites. I think they're parasites. I don't think they're elites. And I think that what we've, you, you're right that they, they're not, they don't even bother concealing themselves. And I think that the reason is that they, they, they can't afford the luxury. You know, it's, it's, they, they're scrambling, they're flailing, they're losing control of the situation. And uh, I think that they count on being able to rewrite history and sanitize the accounts uh, after they prevail. That's what they hope because that's what they always do. Yeah. And so you can you can see that. I mean, okay, you know how they're uh, contriving these ridiculous stories about some, you know, some gaggle of people renting a sailing yacht and blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines. <laughs> uh, it is it is beyond ridiculous. It's all laughable, except you know, that's what would be uh, the the um, the resource material for a later date when histories are written. Oh, look at this article that came out in Wall Street Journal. Well, that's respectable. We can cite that and we can put in history books that, you know, this is how some rogue element of the Ukrainian intelligence, um, uh, you know, managed to uh, pull off this incredible feat. And, you know, that's that. That's how this story goes to die. Or maybe they don't even mention that there ever was such a thing. And so I think that part of the reason why they don't bother concealing themselves anymore, it's because it's do or die for them. And if they die, it won't matter. And if they do prevail, if they do happen to somehow, you know, snatch a victory out of the jaws of defeat, then they'll rewrite history according to the way they need it to be rewritten. Yeah. Yeah. I don't uh, see, I don't see it happening, bro. I don't see him winning. I, I just, no, I, I can't. I agree with you. I, I just yeah, don't see I agree it. with you. But you know, like they, they are not. They did. They didn't make peace with the defeat yet. You know, so they're still scrambling and flailing to do anything. You know, like uh, they'll do a nuclear for false flag if they need to. Oh, they're already planning uh, that. You know, they're planning yeah. that for the Russian uh, nuclear power plant. When Lindsey, yeah, yeah, when sure. Lindsey Graham comes out. With Blumenthal, two of the biggest douche canoes in Washington, D.C., if they come out and they're talking about some kind of a nuclear event and changing Article 5 of the NATO Charter, you know that they're planning. They're telling the world, we're going to do something and we're going to blame it on Russia because we have to we have to back Putin into a corner. We have to back the hardliners in Russia into a corner. And that they're, that, to, the, that to me screams absolute desperation to get the narrative yes. back. Yes. And that's not yeah, going to work yeah, out yeah. well for them. And then I wanted to touch on something else that you said, because you, you had a very salient point. And that is people people gravitate towards you and, and Luongo and a few others because there's no source of truth that they can look to to find real information about what the what is really going on. What's the ground truth? What's the What's the real information that they should be paying attention to? Right. One of the things that captured captured my attention was I, I listened to it was a two, two and a half hour uh, conversation between you and Tom. And then I read your your sub stack and I was like, this guy's dialed in. He knows exactly what's going on in Europe. He sees the elite in Europe clearly. He sees the situation clearly. And he's not mixing words about what <clears throat> what's transpiring. A lot of people, uh, you know, and I'm. 
I'm on the other end of the spectrum, right? I'm I'm like Tom. I'm very raw and I'm in your face and I say things directly and I don't mix words. And that turns a lot of people off. But when you mix the two, when you two are to, to talking about the current situation, especially the current economic situation, people gravitate towards that because nobody else is saying the things you're saying. And nobody else is right. saying it. You know, like one of the things I want to ask Tom is the Epstein stuff that was plaguing Jamie Diamond evaporated literally three weeks ago. And now the conversation about ESG is a different conversation. And there's no mention of any of the Epstein stuff related to Morgan Stanley or to um, any of the other banking executives, especially Jamie Diamond, because of the deal they made. It makes me wonder, you know, what's what's the real backroom dope deal that took place? Because, you know, that was that was backroom negotiations that made that go away. It wasn't. Yeah, that's. Go ahead. No, no, I think that's extremely interesting. I haven't thought of that, but yeah, uh, that is a, a really, really good point. I, I think that's extremely relevant, and uh, it it might explain a lot of things about what's been transpiring over the past few weeks. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, look at BlackRock. BlackRock saying things that like they're walking away from ESG. That that the interesting part of that conversation is they're the ones that was were pushing it in the first place, along with Morgan yep. Stanley. So, but hey, let's transition because I, I know you're on the ground in Croatia and I want to get your take on the situation that's, that's in Serbia, Croatia, uh, Kosovo, given the, the, you know, the BS press that's been pushed out over the last couple of weeks. What's, what's the ground truth there? What's really going on? I think it's, it's died down all of it a little bit. Uh, nothing much is going on at the moment. Uh, but I think that it's the you know like it's it basically it's the same old same old you know like the um, the uh, the Serbia Kosovo situation is just another detonator in the in the on the on on the Eurasian continent that can be turned into a into a major crisis that they can use to destabilize the region destabilize Serbia uh, regime change the Serbian government if need be you know because. President Vucic hasn't been, you know, uniformly loyal to the Western uh, establishment. He's been, you know, trying to straddle both sides to his advantage, and he hasn't in imposed, uh, you know, sanctions on Russia. So, you know, maybe he got a signal: uh, watch out, because we can cause a lot of problems for you. And that's what I think uh, happened. Um. I, I think that this is what we see happening all over the place because as the Western, you know, uh, parasitic establishment, meaning the axis between Wall Street and the city of London are literally losing control, um, they're trying to set off more and more crises. Uh, one of the most interesting ones at the moment, I think, is France. And I think that, you know, over the last several months, uh, Emmanuel Macron has been very uppity. You know, he's been to China on his way back to China. He said, we shouldn't be unquestioningly vassals of the United States and NATO. We should chart our own policy. Um, he also 
made explicit statements that the West, if they want to resolve the crisis in Ukraine, they have to take into account Russia's security concerns. And then most recently, he actually asked the president of um, South Africa, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, to to have a seat at the next um, BRICS summit in South Africa, which is going to be at the end of July and beginning of August. Um, you know, this is, you know, as, as, as part of the Western uh, alliance, he shouldn't be doing this. He shouldn't be asking to be part of the part of the BRICS and or or mentioning anything uh, favorable to Russia or or saying that we shouldn't be unquestioning vassals to the to United States and NATO. What do you make and of that? So I think I mean, what do you make of him going down there and pandering to that to that crowd? I mean, it it says a couple of things to me, but I'm curious what your take is on that because that's you're right. That's completely out of the wheelhouse of of compliance with well, Western hegemony. So I'm curious what you yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's a there's a lot of context to this story. There's a lot of context, and it goes back maybe uh, at least a hundred years. But the one of the one of the extremely interesting events that happened is uh, you'll recall in the run up to the March 2003 uh, invasion of Iraq that uh, President Jacques Chirac and his uh, foreign minister Dominique de Villepin were not on board with the invasion of Iraq. And they were open about it in the Security Council uh, meetings that, you know, we're not convinced of your case uh, for and justification for invasion of Iraq. What happened then, very, very shortly after that, is that uh, uh, in Haiti, um, sorry, the name now escapes me, um, uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Jean-Bertrand Aristide was installed in power. Wait, that's a name I haven't heard for a while. <laughs> Aristide? Yeah, well, it's, a... it's kind of relevant because, you know, uh, France has a very heavy uh, moral debt towards Haiti, okay? And uh, why? Because in 1791, uh, Haiti's slave, African slaves that were, you know, working under French colonizers, staged a rebellion, uh, they broke free. Uh, Napoleon sent a huge armada in 1801, tried to subdue them, got his butt handed back to him. He lost more troops in Haiti than he did at Waterloo. And in 1804, uh, Haitian slaves uh, declared independence. And then um, the French, uh, sent another armada in 1825, and they forced the Haitians to accept, um, you know, they said, like, we'll recognize your independence, but you owe us 150 million French francs, okay? How much is 150 million French francs? Uh, in 1803, the United States bought the Louisiana Territory from from France. The price was 80 million French francs, for so almost half, for a territory that was 77 times the size of Haiti. So this was an extreme extortion that was imposed on Haiti. So for the next 200 years, you know, Haiti remained impoverished, uh, paying off uh, the debt to the French financiers, the debt that they didn't know because they merely won back their freedom, except 
you know, the French were going to blockade them and cut them off from world global trade. So they had to, so, okay, anyway, so that's that debt. That's something extremely ugly that France would like to forget. They would prefer that it didn't happen and that nobody knew about this. <laughs> so 2003, uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide comes to, to power. And uh, I think this was in May 2000. No, at the, towards the end of 2003, he begins to make a lot of noise about restitution. And he calculates the sum to a cent. And what was the sum? It was something north of $20 billion, right? Yeah, I, I, yeah it was 20, I thought it was 25 billion, but yeah, it was some ridiculous No, no, it was, it, was, it was something north of 20, but there, you know, the funny thing was it was like a, a, a figure precise to a cent. Right, it had a it had a two decimal points after after the zero, and uh, you know this was this was uh, a, a, a nuclear bomb for from France because that would set a precedent that all other French colonies might make similar demands, and France wasn't about to pay twenty billion dollars to Haiti. Well, um, this went away really quickly. And I think again we had backroom deals, where the French said like, "All right, okay, well we're on board with the Iraq invasion with and and then you know the U.S. went in, kidnapped uh, Aristide. I think this was in January two thousand four. The whole problem went away. Aristide was extricated, sent to some uh, Central African Republic. I think." The problem went away, and then uh, the next year, in 2005, France was uh, a member of NATO, because it wasn't a member of NATO before that. So do you see the point that I'm making? Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a history between France and the Anglo-American Empire. And so I think that uh, it may be that we're seeing the same thing happen again, because you know, the French are losing control of their former colonies. They're losing the collateral that they represented for the French, uh, you know, banking system, for the French financiers. Uh, and they see no choice. They see no choice but to try to join the other bloc. Uh, and so they're making overtures to the BRIC countries to to see if they can, you know, somehow finagle their way to have influence. and who knows, maybe one day become a member. And I think that the riots that we're seeing on the streets of Paris and Marseille and other cities in France today, which are really off the charts violent, it's practically low intensity warfare going on there, is again, a warning from the empire. You know, if you, if you go uppity on us, we're gonna hurt you. And I think that this is what's going on in France. You know, in a way it's, it's the same thing as, happened last month in Serbia and it's always the same scenario how the how the empire keeps its vassals in check yeah but I wonder how long they can keep that up I don't see them <clears throat> maybe I'm naive which is fine I don't mind being naive in this case but how long do you think they can keep that up because Europe's broke I mean let's face it Europe is broke they 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 don't have, you know, now they're deindustrializing. So pretty soon they're not going to have the ability to produce anything. How are they able to keep that, you know, keep 
all their vassals in line when they're completely broke. I, I, that's the part that I have a hard time getting my head around. Because intimidation and fear only go so far, right? Well, yeah. Well, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, sometimes it's better if your vassals are broke and, and impoverished. And l just look at Ukraine. They've been keeping Ukraine uh, as, the, you know, Ukraine has been dead last as, as an economic performer in the world since between its independence in 1991 and uh, 2014 when 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 there was the, the the coup staged in Kiev so literally Ukraine was one of the five five countries in the world that in that 24 year period had negative GDP growth and theirs was the worst in the whole world I mean they underperformed Burkina Faso in Congo and places like that, Afghanistan and so on. So uh, in in 2014, the World Bank calculated the poverty threshold in Ukraine at $131 a month, you know, monthly salary of $131. And Ukrainian, average Ukrainian salary was $127. So, you know, like average, not, you know, so... You know, like most of the population was actually living on on verge of poverty, and twenty five percent was under the poverty threshold, and a large percentage of that was in in abject, you know, poverty. And I think that the the reason why this could be favorable to the to the empire is because it's the dry tinder that you can use later on as 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 cannon fodder because people have no future, people have no no hope and no prospects and then you know look you come in with uh, with the great stories about the myth of the great nation who which is held back and kept in crisis by whoever you designate as as the enemy you know in this case it was the 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 russian jewish mafia in you know like in germany same thing you know permanent crisis for for a few decades and then you know, it was the communists and the and the and the Bolsheviks who were the enemy. Well, we've and never so heard that story before, have we? It sounds like the no, you know, no, it's never. The, <laughs> it's the same story over and over. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same story over and over again. So I think that maybe you know, uh, immiserating uh, countries like uh, you know European nations and even the United States uh, makes sense to them. Uh, because of the ulterior motive of maybe using that nation for some big war that they're planning next. Next, I just you but know I the think... hard part, the hard part with war though is that it war is a marathon that requires a mountain of logistics. If you look at where we were in World War II, we were in we were in the prime place for the parasites, as you call them to leverage the U.S. population to fight that war. We had the production yeah. capability, we had the raw resources, we had the logistical capability, and we had the motivation. Now, we don't have that. There's too many people that are awake that are going, eh, we're not going to do that. Nice try. I, I don't know where they're going to get the fighting force from because they're going to try and conscript people, especially these, these folks that come in from other countries, and they've already opened up the military to illegal immigrants. And most of them are yes, like, eh, yes, we're not going to do yeah. that. Eh, nice try. We're not doing that. And they're, yeah, they, even yeah, they're yeah. shunning it because when you think about it, they've made it too good for them. 
They brought him in. They let him shop cities to get the most, the best deal. They put him in housing. They're building communities for him. They're not going to want to go fight for citizenship. They've they've got a good deal where they are. I mean, it's like, why would I give up free meal, free room, free board, cell phone, and a house to go fight in Ukraine? Why would I do that? And it's literally yeah. what's going on. So I I just I I don't see the. You know they're not going to re- they're not going to resort to the Gen X or the Gen Z or the or the uh, millennials because they they're not going to go fight. Most of them don't even believe in the military, so they're all like, eh, "I'm not going to go do that. Why would I do that? What is it?" Yeah. And, and, and that's the other thing that they've created too, because of the indoctrination in the universities. You have an entire generation of kids that are like. What does this have to do with the big picture? How does this contribute to society? What am I doing to to further the big picture? And if you can't answer that question, they want no part of what you're selling. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So I don't see how they think they're gonna they're gonna generate. I mean, they're and they're even having a hard time in Ukraine right now trying to generate enough people that want to that will support the war effort. To sustain it. In fact, if I was a bet man, I would say that Ukraine is going to crumble within within a month. I think it the situation on the ground is that dire. When you're seeing U.S. troops in a building in just outside of Bakhmut that's blown up by the Russians, that tells me they're already backstopping the the Ukrainian army with U.S. troops. That's what it tells me. Or they've got so many trainers on the ground because their offensive operations have gone so so horribly that they're moving advisors forward so they can coordinate yeah. and lead those yeah. those offensive actions that's how bad they are and that's amazing to me because that's 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 not our doctrine our doctrine is to train and then send those units forward with their own leadership not to send our advisors for we got out of that business after vietnam we we realized in vietnam when you send advisors forward they get decisively engaged. A lot of them get killed, and that's the that's the wrong optics. Now they're forward. That says to me that there's it's only a matter of time before there's some kind of direct engagement with the Russians, and that is an act of war. But again, it boils yeah. down to who's going to fight the war. Yeah, that's I think real. I think you're I think you're right, and I think that it's not good optics, and I think it indicates that there's a that Ukrainian army is broken and they're trying to backstop it with whoever they can. You know, I, I, I've seen that there's a, there's a, there's mercenaries from all over the place there, you know, like people, people, you know, posting videos in Portuguese in Spanish in English in Polish and what have you, you know, they're coming from everywhere, but uh, it's probably not, you know, not good material to constitute a real army. You know, they're just like, bringing their bodies you know warm bodies that can carry a rifle and and drive tanks and uh apcs yeah you um, know the, the funny part of that is so this is this is exactly what we did in iraq so when we moved into iraq and this is why um shelly kashvili and a few others were relieved by rumsfeld was when they did the initial conversation around Iraq and Tommy Franks, you know, was the guy planning it, there was no thought process past 
once we do the shock and awe invasion, then what? There was literally no plan once we owned the country. And because of yeah. that, we we only had 110,000 troops that we could put on the ground and sustain on the ground. And that took a that was a Herculean effort to keep 110,000 boots on the ground. So what did we do? We we contracted with Blackwater and with now that Z and, and Global Security and a number of other private contractors to fill the gaps to give us another 140,000 on the ground to cover the key areas because we just didn't have enough boots on the ground to cover it. My headquarters in Mosul, there was only 89 of us. We replaced 101st Airborne. That was 300 plus in just in their headquarters. Their entire division was, was on the ground. When they put First Corps on the ground, there was only 89 people in the headquarters because First Corps is a training brigade. They, they our training right. division, they literally didn't have the boots to go occupy Northern Iraq. And so we brought in South Koreans and put them up in, in um, Erbil. We had, we had different uh, nationalities up into hook, but we augmented our, our ground forces with contractors because number one, they're out of the public eye. Number two, they're not in uniform. So nobody pays attention to them. And number three, and most importantly, you can conduct operations with them that you don't have to be accountable for because they're a private contractor. And I yeah, see them yeah. doing that right now in, in Ukraine, but I'm curious to see when it, when this goes into full scale Russian movement, because you know, they're going to move at some point. I'd be yeah, hard pressed yeah. to think they're going to stay in the Donbass and let 90,000 more troops get trained up, but you never know. They could. The point is, once they start to move, then do we backstop with U.S. troops and contractors, or do we let them move? Because I think you're talking about a thousand mile front. The Germans had this problem in World War II and Barbarossa, yeah, yeah. and they couldn't they couldn't sustain all their troops across the thousand mile front. That's a huge logistical problem. I don't know how the hell NATO thinks they're going to do it. I I don't think they do either. You know, I think that they're at the at the at the level of hope and pray by now. You know, they the whole. The whole big gambit was um, conducted in the hope that uh, Putin's regime would collapse at home, you know, and the, the, you know, the whole idea was let's provoke, let's provoke them into a war. When they invade, we uh, impose these nuclear sanctions. We just go all out on sanctions. Uh, the economy is going to collapse. Uh, people are going to be out on the street. They're going to take down Vladimir Putin, and we won the war because we don't have to really fight Russian military. We can just go back in there with our NGOs, with our advisors, with our you know embassy staff, uh, CIA, whoever, MI6, and we can do like we did with uh, Boris Yeltsin's government. You know, you have a nom nominally Russian government, but there, but surrounded by Western advisors doing the bidding of Western corporate and financial interests. So I think that that's what they wanted to do. It didn't work and they don't have a plan B. That is the plan B and C and D are all, um, you know, making it up as they go along. Well, I think this goes back to something you said, I think in one of the, one of the interviews with, uh, you've done so many interviews where you've talked about this. You've said several times, which I wholeheartedly agree with, I think you and I have been saying it for almost two years now, that the, the ruling class does not have a vision of the future. They don't even have a vision 
of how they want post-Ukraine to go. They just want to do the reconstruction, harvest all the profits, but they don't have a vision of what they want it to look like once they rebuild it. They just they just want to move in and launder money. And I'm seeing that across the board. They don't have a vision for what they want this to look like when it's all said and done and they get their social scoring system and they get the vaccine mandates and the pharmaceuticals um, are able to to push whatever into the human body. None of it. There's this, all these disjointed activities, all of them terrible, by the way, but yeah. none of them have a vision. Like, one of the things that like World War II, we had a vision that when we finish this war, we're, we don't want to we don't want to fight this. But when we finish this war, we are going to take away the Germans and the Italians and the Japanese ability to conduct war. And then we're going to rebuild their countries. We're going to install some kind of a democratic solution. And then we're going to live in peace. That, I mean, that literally was the stated doctrine for most of the leadership in D.C. at the start of World War II. It, it wasn't Correct. it wasn't hatred of the Japanese or hatred of the Germans. It was we need to take away their ability to wage war so that we can influence peace across the planet so we don't have to do this again. We've already lived through one world war where we don't want to fight another, but we will if we have to. This group doesn't have that vision. This group is all about we're losing control. We need to implement more control. And you know how it is with control freaks. When they feel like they're out of control, yeah. they try and exert more control and it just turns into to, to a debacle. And we're on the precipice of that debacle happening and they don't even realize it. At least that's how I view it. You call me crazy. Uh, no, no, I think you're absolutely correct. But um, you know, I think that the the there's a there's a method to the madness. They don't have a vision because they don't feel like they need a vision. You know, their their agenda is so big that all this what what Ukraine's going to look like after the war, what Europe's going to look like after the war. That's just like you know, um, appendices, uh, not very important. We can fill that out later uh, when when it matters. You know. Uh, and I think that it's really important to keep in mind the broad, the broadest possible context to this conflict. And the reason why it's important, because it comes back to the United States. You know, it's it's it's. I believe that United States is where it's at, in fact, and I'll, I'll try to explain this. So I think that the. George Soros gave us the broadest possible context to this conflict uh, at the at the Davos meeting in 2021 in May, uh, when he did his annual speech to the you know the the World Economic Forum people, and he said that the current conflict is the conflict between two models of governance. That's what it is. It's not between the United States and Russia. It's not between the United States and China. It's between two models of governance, and. Uh, one of the models of governance is the Western imperial um, colonial system. And the other one is pretty much the rest of humanity, except, you know, today humanity has uh, Russia and China as credible uh, political and military forces that can um, say no to the empire. They can, they can actually push back. Now, the... The, the imperial system of the West has one overarching imperative, which is 
to hang on to their hegemony over the Eurasian landmass. And it's not to bring democracy and freedom to the peoples of Eurasia, but because that's where most of the global um, resources are, most of the um, global population is, energy reserves and so forth. And uh, that's a that's a massive chunk of of uh, area, and of course you cannot hope in your wildest dream to police it with your with your militaries you, that you can occupy it and and police it that way. So what the British Empire has done for centuries was to always uh, break off uh, the the territories into smaller, weaker political entities small countries that you can always pit one against the other. So that takes us back, you know, to the places like Serbia and Kosovo or, you know, like uh, China and Taiwan, uh, India and Pakistan, uh, Russia and Ukraine, um, uh, Syria and Turkey, um, Syria and Lebanon, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran. It's all over the place, everywhere, right? Uh, and so that way, with you know, with the help of your uh, secret services and your diplomacy, you can always pit one of these entities against the other, uh, kind of provoke one into going to war with the other, and then you help them with you know, you, you supply them weapons, you provide them loans, you bring your corporations there to develop their resources and so forth, and you systematically corrupt their leadership. And that's how you can keep uh, that whole huge area under control. Uh, the big problem is that you must not allow for uh, another power to arise that can actually push back against your strategy and to say no, and then to become, you know, the new the new focus of uh, of uh, regional security that can, you know, implement a different system of governance there. And so, you know, if you if you go back to Zbigniew Brzezinski's writing in the Grand Chessboard, he said that the imperative was to prevent another power from arising on Eurasian landmass, uh, and particularly for two or three of them that could collude and and ally together against the the Western Empire, which is what happened with Russia with the rise of Russia and China. And which is why we now have the war in Ukraine, because the whole purpose of it is to use Ukraine to destabilize and hopefully regime change uh, Russia and then to partition it into five or however many smaller political entities. That's the agenda. Well, they already lost, right? And they're not going to get back the uh, their hegemony over the Eurasian landmass anytime soon. So now the consolation prize for them is to carve off a, a block, a political block, to erect uh, an iron curtain around it, and then to try to regroup and and consolidate for a future, you know, another hurrah at, at trying to, to claim a global hegemony. Yeah, now, I don't see it working block, either. I don't see it working either. Right? You're right. Yeah, they... but here's the here's the kicker, you know, because you know who who's in this? Who would be in this block? It would be Britain, maybe Australia, Canada, maybe New Zealand, and maybe some Northwest European countries. That's about it. Not a viable entity unless they can cement the United States within their block. 
Okay. So I think, so if, if they can, you know, make sure that the United States remains part of their bloc, then they're viable, then they're going to be able to rise back to power and maybe have another shot at global empire in, you know, like in a generation or two from now. But if they lose in the United States, it's game over, which is why I think uh, there's an all-out war brewing under the surface for the United States to make sure that it remains part of part of the bloc. And I think that we know who's who's on what side. You know, the Biden administration on the neocons are working in favor of this agenda. The you know people like Donald Trump are uh, trying to extricate the United States from this. But I think I, I think it's muddier why... than that, Alex. I, I think it's way muddier than that because you have you have the Biden family that's completely compromised by China. I mean, completely yeah. compromised. Yes. So yes. you can't discount the fact that there's a Chinese involvement in the in the USA. You can't dis, you can't discount the fact that you have all these military aged Chinese males that have been imported into this country since January. That's going to lead to kinetic. I don't care what anybody says. Those guys aren't um, here yeah, to just I, no, no, you know not, pass out beans, not. bullets, and and flyers. Those guys are here for kinetic ops. And the question is, what's the involvement between the government and the deep state and the rest of the uh the rest of the military apparatus versus the NATO alliance and the hegemony you're talking about? Because I think there's there's marriages of convenience here that will disrupt the overall um plan. For the fair, for the very you know simple reason that everybody's going to realize that not everybody's getting a seat at the table, and that's going to that's causing an internal conflict right now. I see that erupting into kinetic operations between factions when they realize that the plan is not going the way that they thought it was going to go, and they see that as an opportunity to throw one of the other factions under the bus to stay in power. I see that developing too. So I. I my point of saying all that is I think it's a lot the situation's a lot more complex on the ground here than people think. And I don't I don't want to make it as easy as Trump's the good guy working working against the bad guys. Oh no, no. Because Trump's done his fair share of stupid shit in the last year that has has made me question, you know, who are you really working for? Because some of the things he said about warp speed and vaccines, like, dude, what is wrong with you? No one in this country wants to yeah. hear this. No one. Why are you talking about this? And I don't I'm not I'm not giving him credit for having dipshits around him because he does have a lot of really horrible people around him. Mark Meadows is one of them. But it makes me wonder who is advising him and why is he getting this advice? But more importantly, who's paying the bills? Because there's got to be somebody in the background playing, paying the bills. Right. Driving right, this. Right. Sorry to derail yeah, I that. Think no, no, that's fine because I don't disagree with you at all. But I think that the, you know, like there's a there's a largest larger conflict to all the there's a larger context to all this, and I know for a fact that the Chinese have anticipated this conflict, you know, and I think that the Chinese have systematic. You're completely right about their involvement. They have systematically infiltrated the United States at, at almost every level. Um, but I think that their intent is to participate in this fight because, you know, like the United States will go either the way of the British Empire or is going to go the way of, of, uh, of uh, you know, multipolar 
integrations. I and see that's Rome. Why I, that's, that's why what... I believe that. Yeah, go ahead. I see Rome, bro. I, I, I see us going the way of Rome, where literally the, the country falls apart like Rome. Because if you look at the parallels of the fall of the Roman Empire, where we are in the rhetoric that's coming out of D.C., it's almost exactly the same rhetoric. Like you're not a true citizen unless you're in the Senate. I mean, all of that language is almost exactly the same rhetoric is coming out of D.C. And they're they're trying to build this police state around themselves to, to insulate themselves without any kind of realization that the rest of the world is not on their 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 playing card anymore. They're completely off the board. I don't think these guys realize it. It's 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 literally the most amazing thing that I have um, seen in years. But you know, stranger things have happened. But I just see us as Rome. I don't see us as the British Empire because the British Empire slowly contracted over you know four decades, and then after World War II, it was basically just a, a figurehead with the city of London manipulating all these other countries for financial gain, but their reach, their power, their military strength, completely gone. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. No, forgive me. I have, I have, I have not expressed myself correctly. Um, I, here's what I meant when I said the United States is either going to go the way of the British empire or the way of multipolar integrations. Uh, going back to the, to the fact that the, you know, the, 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 the Western empire is now uh, it, it's lost its gambit for uh, hegemony over the Eurasian landmass. Its consolation price is to carve off a political block. Um, when I say the British Empire, I mean this empire because this really is the reincarnation of the undead British Empire. When when British Empire fell apart, it simply moved its um, it, it 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 moved to infiltrate. The United States. That's what happened, and the United States became the next. Uh, how do you call it? Massive. Host. It became a host to the empire and continued to um, to execute exactly the the same geopolitical strategy that the British Empire did. So now you know the for this for this new block that's going to be emerging that's going to try to preserve itself to be viable long term. They're going to need the United States to be part of it, to be within. Uh, this is the struggle, I think, of our of this time is whether the United States is going to be part of that political block or not, because that's what's going to determine whether they're going to be viable and successful in the future or not. And I think that this struggle is so important to the rest of the world, including the Russians and the Chinese that they have anticipated this. I don't know if Russians have, but the Chinese 100% have. And this is why they have infiltrated the United States, you know, in the in the in the academia, in 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 Hollywood, in 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 the media, in in the in you know like they've they've systematically corrupted all the democratic leaders. How do they know to do that? How do they know because you know like we know that the Bidens are corrupt except you know the Chinese not only know it; they have the receipts. Oh yeah. So they absolutely. You know, like they have they have leverage over them. They have influence. <laughs> so, uh, well, you know, my, you know, that's my, an interesting uh, premise. By the way, is that 
disruption by the Chinese to break up the the European hegemony. That's that, my friend, is an interesting premise that I hadn't even thought of. Because oh yeah, and 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 you know if you if you pay close attention to the speeches of Xi Jinping and other communist um, communist uh, leaders there they are really, really hung up on their century of humiliation, okay? Yeah, you said um, that before, and, and I, I have, I've been looking for that for that rhetoric, and I haven't seen it. But it, 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 I'm not saying it's not there. I'm just saying I haven't seen it, no, but it, I, it, I agree it, with you. Uh, um, and I, I unfortunately, I, I may have notes on it. I may have it somewhere. You know, I, I, I often copy-paste stuff into my own stuff, except that then I, I don't necessarily know how to find it. But uh, yeah, that's that's that rhetoric is very very present in China, and the Chinese leadership know exactly who inflicted that century on, of humiliation on them, and they know that that's the British Empire, and so I think that their plan is to end that empire, and I think that that's going to determine much of what's going on uh, during the twenty first century. But again, you know, for for countries like Russia and China, and I think pretty much everybody else, it is absolutely essential to not allow the United States to be dragged into this uh, this dark block of of the British Empire. You know, Canada, UK. Um, well, I hate I hate to say it, brother, but the only way that's going to happen is armed revolt here. That's the only one. Yeah, the yeah, military's yeah, exactly, not going to strip exactly. in. These people need to be. I'm going to say this as a military guy, not as a not as a humanitarian. These people need to be purged from the earth, not from the system, yes. not retired, not put in jail. They need to be purged from the earth, and it needs to be done in a very extreme and expeditious manner, because the damage they've done not just to, to this country. But the damage they've done to humanity with the vaccines, the human trafficking, all of the all of the drug trading, and China's involved in this too. And and we could you and I could spend a whole hour just talking about the situation in China and how fragile and brittle that is, and how the two closest guys to Xi hate each other. That I see that blowing up before I see the economy over there blowing up. Somebody blows on the wrong thing. And it tips over and their entire economy blows up. And then those two guys start fighting it out. And then they start going after Xi. And then you have civil war in China. China's off the board. That's that's a very plausible scenario within the next month, given their situation. But that said, right. that's a whole different conversation. But I think from just when I look at the situation on the ground, because I've had this conversation many times with many, many senior officers. You can't reform the system. The entire system is falling apart and crumbling at their feet. And they don't know what yeah. to do to fix it. They have no words to fix it. And when it does crumble, then the right people need to step up and eradicate every single one of these criminal organizations and burn them to the ground. Not just not just burn the head leadership, burn the whole organization down. Because Mexico's a narco state, and that whole that whole country needs to be it needs to be purged of all the cartels, all the way down to Panama, 
And that's only so going to happen if if our current intelligence establishment, our current parasite parasite parasitic elites, and our current banking elites are taken off the board. Because as long as they're here, there's going to be a drug problem, a drug trade, and narco states surrounding the U.S. They've well, propagated actually, the problem. Yeah, actually, that's that 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 problem is relatively easy to solve. All you have to do is strike at the at the money laundering banks. Yeah. Okay, because because it's it's actually the 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 top of the bank the top of the narco cartels are the banks like uh, you know like HSBC and whoever you have I mean pretty much all of them uh, because you know these these narco cartels generate something like four hundred and fifty million dollars per week in cash yeah so that's yeah. a lot of cash that's a lot of you know, like there's pallets and pallets and pallets of 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 paper money, paper currency. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? You can't, you know, like you have to store it and you have to guard it and you have to have people guarding it and they have to be loyal to you. And you can only spend it on things like, you know, what do you do with with cash? You 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 can't spend it on so many things. So you know, like once you had a car and two cars and ten cars and two houses and so many prostitutes and so much champagne. Uh, you you've run out of things to buy, except once it's been laundered through a bank, then you have it clean in your bank account. Then you can buy helicopters and submarines and armored personnel carriers and all kinds of everything, which is what's actually going on in in Mexico. So you know, without the banks uh, laundering money for these cartels, the whole thing would splinter into a million pieces. Why? Because suppose that suppose that you're the you're the cartel boss and you have like i don't know five billion dollars stashed in some warehouse and you hired me and a couple of buddies to to guard that money for you how easy would it be for me and and my buddies to say like you know screw that the hell with steven let's just take this money for ourselves and start our own thing right it'd be very easy and so uh you know without without the cartel bosses being able to launder that money into bank accounts and have it clean in, you know, like banks in New York and Switzerland and wherever, uh, the whole thing would splinter into very small groups all uh, warring against each other. And then, you know, law enforcement could mop that up relatively easily. Uh, who anoints the cartel boss? It's the banker. Because the banker decides who they're going to work with and who they're going to not work with. So you know, like if you if you have a relationship with a bank and you bring all this cash for for laundering, and they say like, "Yes, Mr. Murray, no problem. We're going to have this for you in a, in your New York bank account uh, next week," uh, you know that that's your 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 safety. If I steal a hundred million of your cash and go to the bank try to do the same, they'll say like, "Who are you? We're not working with you. Go away." So I'm I'm blocked, you know, like that's that's where I'm blocked at the at the at the banking relationship, not necessarily because I can't shoot just as well as any other employee of the of the of the cartel boss, right? So if you strike at the money laundering banks, you won that war. Except you remember what happened in 2012 when HSBC was outed for having laundered money for uh Mexican narco cartels. What happened? A letter went to uh, Eric Holder in Obama administration to basically let the bank off the hook, and they were let off the hook. They they paid a parking ticket, something like five or ten percent of their annual profits, 
And that was it. They were able to continue in business, even though they violated the United States anti-money laundering laws. Like at least 30 uh, C-level executives of HSBC should have been slammed into prison and the bank should have lost their banking license in the United States. It should have been closed and liquidated. Obama administration, in, in an act of high treason, <clears throat> let HSBC off the hook. That's that's who makes the Mexican cartels powerful. It's the it's the London banking cartels. Yeah, and the intelligence apparatus because the intelligence apparatus yeah. has a yeah, has yeah, a play yeah, in that too. Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it's it's a lot more complicated than you know. I, I wish it was as easy as take out the banker, but you know, you and I both agree that the the current banking system, SWIFT and and LIBOR, they they all need to be reformed. Uh, from the ground up, because the system's been in place for how many how many generations now? Fifteen generations with without a change. I, I think we're going to see yeah. we're going to see that change. Problem is, who steps in to reform the system? Because the same people that are trying to give us the new system are the same people that want to instill a new system to hide all of their uh, malfeasance as well as hide all of their atrocities. I mean, that's the whole point of the new system and digital currency is it has nothing to do with digitizing anything. It's all about covering their their atrocities and giving them more control over the population. I I don't see how they're going to be successful at that. I just don't because there's too many people I, I that are that in the end, in the end, 100 percent, they won't because they've been trying to do this for centuries and it always ends up falling, falling in on them. You know, like the, it always ends up collapsing on them. But I think that. You know, like even even without reforming the banking system, if you if you did if if you just simply um, enforced the laws of the land, you would get a very material change. You know, like if any of these banking executives thought that they that they might end up uh, serving long prison terms, or like in China, corrupt bankers getting uh, in going in front of a firing squad and getting executed. I guarantee you that the behavior would change in a very dramatic way, except that they know that they have impunity. They they never go to jail. They never answer. The worst that can happen to them is that their bonuses get deferred by, by a quarter or two. <laughs> and so, you know, like they've been they've been taught by the system that they get to do whatever they want. And then they use the legal system and their lawyers to get themselves off the hook completely every time. Yep. And Every so that means time. it's a, it's an it's an open season for any kind of abuse they can think of whatever's profitable whatever works for them they go ahead with it because they know that there's no there's no consequences and if you give them consequences if you give them long prison terms or 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 you know death penalties i guarantee you that the behavior would change very radically Yeah i'm not sure i i'm not sure that's one uh that's one i i wholeheartedly agree with because i i've seen the money money corrupts even the most ardent deterrence and we're seeing that graphically we've seen that especially in the last two years just how graphic the corruption is and it's because the um the elite have they've they've corrupted every system as well as you know chinese have too right and that's why I'm curious to see how the BRICS system is really going to work. Cause you're talking about a lot of countries that don't have 
let's just say good reputations. It's the the best of the worst that are trying to put together a system that's that's going to be better than Swift. I, I it's that that's the same situation that we have with with enforcing the laws here. You have so many corrupt people that you almost have to reset everything and start over with really really strong enforcement, really really over the top enforcement. And then over time, you can ease back when you've when you've established and normalized the behavior, right? Because that's what you're really talking about is normalizing behavior through a very strong deterrent. That takes a very that takes a significant amount of time to do that, especially when you're you're moving from a system like that we're in now, which is completely corrupt, to something like that. It, there's not a, there's not enough good people left in the system to be able to enforce that. Not law enforcement. No, and yeah, and unfortunately, unfortunately, I think you're right. But you know, I actually, actually, what I was saying is similar to what you're saying. Is but you know, like I'm, I'm saying that you need to enforce the law, and you're saying the system is corrupt, and and I, I'm not disagreeing with that because that is why the law is not being enforced. But the law is there. You know, there are many laws to prevent abuse, except they're not being enforced, and the reason that they're not being enforced is exactly the corruption uh, of the system. Agree. And then, you know, I don't, you know, like when we talk about the reputation of these other, of these other political systems and nations and governments, I don't know, you know, it's a uh, Western media creates a lot of those reputation uh, in, in the ways that are uh, untrue and unfair and unjust. Uh, you know, uh, there's, if you, if you, if you go to Russia, if you go to Russia, for example, uh, you will discover a very well uh, ordered society that functions well that is um, you know very livable uh, and and in a way in a way it's uh, it's wholesome and healthy you know it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination but it doesn't deserve the reputation it has in the west you know like some kind of a corrupt kleptocracy where you know life is miserable it's it's not it's it's not like that at all and no, so that, I think that, that, that stereotype has been propagated across the West for what 60 years now. It's priceless. Yeah, yeah. Pretty people much are, pretty much forever. People pretty are much shocked forever. that it's funny how people are shocked that wait, Russia's a modern country? Yeah, they're actually very modern and they actually have very good connectivity to the rest of the world. You'd be surprised. It's it's actually kind of a functional society. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, let's uh, for the sake of time, um, I want to I want to close with with one topic that uh, that I know is is near and dear to my my audience's heart is how do you see the current situation developing over the next six months? Because they've they've heard me talk at nauseum that I think stuff's coming around the fourth, around the the, the national birthday, and and I'm hoping to be dead wrong on that. But how do you see things developing? Um, I, I have to say, I hope you're wrong as well, but we don't know. I, I think that radical changes are coming our way, uh, to the point that I think it's extremely difficult to predict them. Um, I think that, you know, from the point of view of the United States, I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a system that's under attack that is in jeopardy, but that is, uh, at the core an extremely hard nut to crack, maybe the hardest of all systems in the world, 
I think it has a certain economic and entrepreneurial resilience, self-sufficiency, which many nations don't have. It has a popular, you know, like it has some healthy um, uh, democratic foundations that work in its favor, you know, the state rights and uh, the sheriffs that are elected by local people. It has the Second Amendment and people who are fiercely uh, defensive of it. And I think that, um, I hope, and I think that the United States will bounce, bounce back. And, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're about to hit the bottom, when you're in the, you know, like in the pitch black of the, of the black tunnel, it's very difficult to imagine that, but, you know, it, we, we have many, many historical examples of nations being in that position and then bouncing back in a very short order, very rapidly. And, you know, that's, that's the United States after the Civil War. That's the that's Russia after the 1990s. You know when Putin came to power. That's Japan after World War II and Germany after World War II. And if you see how rapidly they develop and how rapidly they go from complete chaos to a place of relative prosperity, uh, then you realize that all that potential was there. It was being it was being muffled, it was being suffocated, but it was there. And I think that it is there in the United States probably more than anywhere else in the world. And I think that the American people have allies everywhere in the world because everyone in the world, well, most people who are paying attention in the world understand the importance of the United States. And I guarantee you, you now for uh, in in during the 2020 elections when it was between Biden and Trump, people everywhere looked at this as the central event in the world. And I guarantee you that practically everybody I know rooted for Trump. And this is the you know like this is the 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 breadth. And the scope of the support that the United States enjoys across the world, you know, the, the healthy Republican Democratic foundations of the United States. And I'm pretty sure, I, 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 I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that the United States has allies in, in, on the sides of uh, these global multipolar integrations because i think that everybody understands how important it is to bring the united states into the fold of these uh, of these uh, you know multipolar integrations and away from this uh, british imperial colonial system that's you know fighting for its own survival i agree so I wholeheartedly let's, agree. let's yeah, so I, I would say, let's see. Uh, I think that the system is resilient, not nearly as fragile as it appears now. But, uh, you know, I think it'll depend on all of us to to kind of uh, try to try to pull pull the system in the direction we want it to go, to speak out, to to, you know, share experiences, information, knowledge, and to translate that into political pressures locally and then from there to the to the state and national levels and pretty much everywhere across the world i think you're uh, i think you're spot the, the what you're talking about i think would which um if i'm hearing you right is that most of the world realizes that the us in its in its current form can't can't continue but the us 
that emerged out of World War II that was about helping other states rebuild, about enforcing real peace, not this pseudo peace or this endless peacekeeping missions that we've seen for the last 40 years. I, I think that's what the rest of the world wants back. And I think the world also realizes that the U.S. is the backstop for personal freedoms. And if we go, everybody else goes. And they don't want to see that any more than we do. At least that's my read on the situation. I don't I don't think that the world wants to see the U.S. continue in its current concatenation just for the simple fact that it's the corruption, money laundering, et cetera, is out of control. And like you said, the system has to hit rock bottom before real reforms can take place. And I think we're on yeah. the precipice of that. I think that's I think that's imminent yeah, that's- now. Yeah, that's probably very close. That's probably very close. And I think that past that point, uh, we're gonna, we're probably gonna see very encouraging developments. I would hope so, because the, the, I would rather have the system collapse and reform organically than kinetically, because yeah, yeah. kinetic doesn't benefit anyone. It's just a lot yeah. of waste. And I, I, I'm hoping, and I know you're probably on the same page. I'm hoping there's a catalyst event that goes horribly wrong for the the parasites that galvanizes the entire planet against them, because then we'll see real real reform across the planet that will be united. There won't be racial, cultural, or ethnic differences anymore. It will be yeah. a completely united humanity against yes. these parasitical psychopaths. And then the real truth will come out. All the things they've suppressed, all the things they've done behind the scenes and rewritten history about, all of the different dope deals they've made. I mean, you there's a lot of rabbit hole there to go down, but suffice it yes. to say that that's what I've been waiting for since January. I've been waiting for some kind of a massive disclosure about what the elite in this country especially have been doing to children. Because I know the tapes exist. I know that yeah. the activities are are ongoing. I know they've been doing this stuff. I've seen it with my own eyes. I kicked doors on red rooms. I've I've seen body parts of children stacked up to the ceiling. These people are sick. I mean, they're really sick. This is not a it's not a myth. It's not a conspiracy theory. These people are sick. And the things they've done to humanity, people will be shocked to find out. And I like I'm hopeful that that's what happens instead of kinetic. I hope that when they lose control of the the system, that all of that information comes flowing out in a in a tr- you know a system of truth or a, a you know a, a place of truth or a source of truth that people can identify with and trust. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. then you'll see a real shift in humanity, which needs to happen anyway, right? We need to get away from yeah. war. We need to get away from from violence to solving our problems, and we need to we need to move more towards a diplomatic solution. You know, because you know, this diplomacy is messy, it takes time, so it's it's frustrating. But diplomacy, when it's working the right way, without all the backroom dope deals and the coercion, when diplomacy is really working, you see really good results and you see really good compromise. That's what I, that's the system I want to get back to, because I thought, yeah. I, I, I'll just leave it yeah, there. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a hell of a lot better than war for sure. But you know, like uh, to to close, I'd like to uh, 
I'd like to share this thought with with your listeners, um, and I think it's it's a very good way to to think of it metaphorically, and it's a it's like a Confucian principle, which I'll butcher. I, I won't I won't be able to tell you word for word the exact quote, but what it says is basically, when a big tree falls, it falls with great noise and a lot of destruction, but seeds grow silently, and so. What, what, what that means to me is that like what we're seeing today is a collapse of old structures of society that have been, you know, that have been uh, defining uh, our lives for for generations and centuries. And they're not coming apart. And this is, you know, generating a lot of noise. It's very destructive. It's uh, generating a lot of attention and it's keeping us uh, transfixed and mesmerized. But the the seeds growing in silence is probably a million fold more powerful because it's not just um, you know it's not it's not just a few people in power it's like abso- absolutely everyone the whole humanity is is going through a through a large transformation and you know what these seeds grow into we don't know we're gonna find out but. It is those seeds are us, and so what we have to do is 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 cultivate ourselves, I think, and 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 grow into everything we can potentially be and become. And I think that then we're going into a into a much much brighter future than the last few centuries have been. I agree, I wholeheartedly agree. That is a perfect place to end. And normally I end uh, the sit reps with. Um, some music any any suggestions on a closing song today i was going to play blister in the sun by violet femmes just because it's it's eclectic and it's out there but anything you want to hear no that's okay that sounds good (laughs) (laughs) all right brother well hey i'll have to do this again after uh, probably after the the middle of uh, july just to see how things develop over the next several months but i I always I got to say, I, I'm always humbled by your your view of the world because it's so vastly different than mine. I, I look at things more black and white. You have a lot of gray. And I think that that's, that lends a lot of um, just food for thought. Because your premise about China, I think, is I when you said it the first time, I've been geeking out on it ever since then. And I think the interesting part of it is I think you're spot on. I think that I think Xi wants to see the the Western hegemony in Europe completely destroyed, but he knows that he has to preserve the USA in some form, yeah. some format, because it's we're his key trading partner. But and he doesn't benefit from the US being a communist country. Because the one thing no. that he can't get from us if we're a communist country is he can't get innovation. Because they've stolen so much from us just intellectually. There's there's things that in fact, this is the funny part. They've stolen things from us intellectually, especially on the defense side. They don't know how to use. It's so advanced that they don't know what to do with it. And he knows that if he if he destroys the US in in its current format, that it doesn't benefit China in the long run. The long China benefits from a strong US, especially yes. as a training partner, long term. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's I think that's absolutely correct. And I think that's the reason why I'm very confident that this is what China actually wants is because their game is very long. You know, they're not 
they're not in it for you know like next year next elections next you know four years whatever they're they're in this for a very very long haul they're they're playing a very long game and i think that they would absolutely benefit from a strong united states in their orbit you know not in the british orbit yeah and that's a that's a premise i hadn't thought of to be perfectly honest i my again from the military aspect i look at this as what's china's threat to our national security and there's a significant threat there to our national security based on their current actions but that said if we decouple from which we need to do anyway let me just put that on the table we've needed to decouple from the european banking system and the european um, arist um aristocracy for over 100 years and we've been oh, yeah. bound oh, yeah. and joined at the hip to the aristocracy for so long it's corrupted our politics but imagine if we can decouple from that and we can put a system in place that has nothing to do with any interaction with europe other than hedging currencies and trading currencies on a one-to-one -one basis versus what it is now that would yeah. be a vastly yeah. different world and i to be perfectly honest i think the world benefits from a multipolar um detente versus this bipolar or superpower mentality because the balance act between multiple multiple powers would be far more um beneficial for diplomacy than for generating more conflict and let's let's face it people around the world are pretty much the same they want to be able to go to work they want to enjoy their life they want to be able to afford luxuries they want to socialize with their friends and they want to maintain a fairly um simple existence they don't want politics to dominate their life they don't want religion to dominate their life they don't want social issues to dominate their life. They just want to live their lives. That I saw that graphically on the ground, not only in um, in Iraq, but all parts in Africa, all parts in Asia. They all want the same thing. Like Vietnam, one of the funniest things I heard in Vietnam, I was there on the ground for maybe five days. And this is before we it was opened up again. And I was there to do just, POWMIA remains identification and a few other things. And what was interesting about that trip is I asked one of my interpreters that was a product of the Vietnam War. She was in her mid fifties. I said, "What do Vietnamese? What do they view America as?" And they, they, she didn't even bat an eye. She said, "We look at America as a beacon of of freedom, and we want America oh, wow. to survive." Oh, wow. And we, you know, we look back at the war and the war was a, a, a byproduct of the fact that they didn't understand what Ho Chi Minh wanted. And they didn't understand that Ho Chi Minh didn't want totally a communist system, but he also didn't want a capitalist system. He wanted a mix of the two that allowed people to have free enterprise, to have private property, to have a system of governance that didn't revolve around the profit motive and greed. And I was like, wow, yeah. I was taken completely taken back by that. But she wow, said, that, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. And she's like, we just want to live our lives. We, we want to enjoy our families. We want to live our lives. We want to honor our traditions, but we don't want a bunch of overhead that goes with that. I was like, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a great way to say, it. okay, that makes sense.
And I think the rest of the world thinks the same way. You know, take out the arrogance and the the overbearing, you know, American attitude, and you would have a really, really good recipe for world dialogue and cultural dialogue. And and I've said before, and I'll say it again. If we spent one nanosecond celebrating the differences between cultures, this would be a different planet. Just saying. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think that that's 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 not a problem. I, I think that's not a problem for anybody who's normal. You know, I think that it, we we always circle back to the to the you know the system of governance and you know the people who want to impose theirs because it serves their needs are the ones who are trying to homogenize the world and create a monoculture uh, everywhere. Um, but I think that. You know that system of governance, the imperial colonial system, uh, is is only in the interest of the very very narrow circle of uh, of vested interests in the you know in the in the financial uh, cartel and and large corporations, and I think that most of the rest of us, as you said, we just want to you know get on with our lives, enjoy our time here. Uh, enjoy other cultures, sharing, uh, you know, visiting, understanding. And I think that that time is coming. I think that this uh, other system of governance has uh, is now past its shelf life. I hope so, man. I, I hope for, for our sake, my kids' sake, I hope so. Because I, I, yeah. I, know, I know most people on the planet have had enough of it. I mean, to last a lifetime. So yeah. I think the next few weeks are going to be decisive. As we talked before the show, yeah. I, I think it's going to be decisive. But I, I got to tell you, man, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, I'll um, I'll reach out to you um, in a couple of weeks and see if we could get something on the books after the fourth and see how those that that situation develops and see what's going on in Ukraine. But safe travels home, my friend. And uh, we'll thank talk you, soon. thank you, Stephen. Always a pleasure, and uh, I'll be very happy to connect with you uh, in a few weeks again. Absolutely. And here is Blister in the Sun by Violent Femmes. These guys are these guys came out of nowhere in the 90s and they're they're kind of in the psychedelic furs, the Ramones uh genre. But they are um this is an iconic song. If and I'm sure people have never heard this song before, but this is an iconic song. And I think it's some it's perfect for today's conversation. So here's a Violent Femmes. God bless. One team, one fight. Cue low on music. Let's try that again. Violent Fence. Here we go.
now. I'm high as a kite, I just might stop to check When I'm walking, I stop, I stop, and I'm so strung out. And I'm high as a kite, I just might stop to check Body and beats, I stay my sheets. I don't even know why. My girlfriend, she's at the end, she is starting to cry. When I'm walking, stop, stop. Let me go on like I blister in the sun. Let me go on. Big hands, I know you're the one. Well, I was working on my farm about 1982. Pulling up some corn and a little carrot too. We do low flying aeroplanes about 100 feet. 